Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is Cody. I am one of the hosts. I'm Will. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. And uh, this is our first episode on Mason and Dixon, uh, Pynchon's 1997 um, novel that is, I think many would consider among his best, and um, kind of painfully under-discussed outside of the Pinchon circle. Um, so hopefully we can, we can kind of uh, provide some insight into it, or at least our own, and, um, and find out what we can about this, this book. It's one of my favorites. Um, I've only read it once, but I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, so we're, I think, all excited to dive into this one. Um, we've got a summary. Will, do you want to go ahead and summarize the first five chapters that we read? Absolutely. So Mason and Dixon starts with the first of three sections, Latitudes and Departures, which itself begins with the stage setting of the festive season of New England in 1786. We are introduced not only to the parlor room of the Lespark Cherry Coke household, full of sturdy furniture and bustling with cheer, but to its regular afternoon inhabitants, Pitt and Pliny, twins whose collaborative dialogue drives ceaselessly for one tale, another, from their uncle, the well-traveled Reverend Wicks Cherry Coke, as Tenebrae, the eldest, assumes her position of adolescent ambivalence in a nearby seat while practicing embroidery. The twins enter, carrying a cornucopia of baked treats, with a fresh pot of coffee for the kind uncle. They beseech him for a tale of America, with Indians and Frenchwomen, and this, it seems, stirs in the reverence of melancholic grief, as he tries to recall some of the scenes from his travels with the titular pair. We're told how Wicks has only ended up here, boarding with his sister's family, affording bed and meal only through distraction of his niece and nephews for their parents' benefit, because of a late arrival, missing his old friend Charles Mason's funeral and burial. Leaping beyond that pain, he starts his tale by announcing his former imprisonment, which led to his hanging, which did not lead to his death, despite all appearances. Or perhaps there was no prison, no charge, only a bad relationship with his father, who paid him to abscond himself from Great Britain and a flight of fancy. Perhaps his father detested his hideous crime of anonymous publication of letters, an admitted charge eked out by the arrival of his patrilineal counterpart, Uncle Ives. In the end, he settles on a starting place of the Tower of London, or at least some jail in the vicinity. In this abject place, he was labeled mad and prescribed a large dose of maritime therapy, that is to say, sent out upon a naval vessel during wartime. The reverend goes on to complain about this course of treatment, and is compassionately offered to stay in a lunatic asylum instead, refusing this boon, thanking the officer for such grace, and, with advice to steer clear of various harmful substances, Wick's Cherry Coke embarks on his journey. The next chapter begins with a poetically and earnestly written letter from Jeremiah Dixon to Charles Mason. They've both been contracted, as yet strangers to each other, to take observations on the transit of Venus from Sumatra. He apologizes for his ignorance in the scientific arts of astronomy, but pledges to learn. Dixon will later admit that he tortured himself with sobriety while penning draft after draft of this letter. And Mason, chagrined, in kind shares that he had initially meant to discard the letter, assuming it to be basically junk mail. Dixon's sincere belief in he as a teacher embarrasses the cynical scientist, so he himself pens a reply, in which he tries to temper his partner's expectations of himself, details the equipment they'll be relying upon, and tries his best to mirror a shade of Dixon's warmth. 
The pair's first meeting is relayed to us by the Reverend, himself knowing the story only secondhand. By his memory, they rendezvoused in a saloon in Portsmouth, and before setting off in pursuit of their last chance for a civilized drink, Mason begins to disillusion Dixon of his expectations. Charles was not a charismatic social climber, but left quite a bit to be desired in the social polity indeed, bringing out thrilling tales of the hangings at Tyburn, as well as poor impressions of a Durham accent. Dixon's amiable country charm ensures that no quarrel breaks out before they can both attain the safety found in a light souse. Their acquaintance is interrupted by the appearance of a talking terrier, stage name learned English dog, though called Fang by friends. He sings, answers questions of trivia and philosophies natural and intellectual, and inspires in, the, in Mason a hope for reincarnation, for his wife has only in the past year left this mortal station. Going out back to discuss these supernatural matters with the LED, the duo are interrupted by a faulty business po proposition from a crew member of their chartered craft, Fenderbelly Bodine. A nearby macaroni challenges Fang to a duel while the dog is telling Mason the open secret of his provenance. The fop is scared away with a threat of rabies, and Fang leads Mason and Dixon to hire a local seer. Dixon flirts with the secretly youthful woman while she tries to warm them off their voyage. Apparently, many French sea captains take no heed from such frivolities as cause for engagement. At dawn, hoping to ask further of her, this time of a personal matter, Mason cannot find neither sign nor hair of either the dog or the scryer. Apparently, the Captain Smith of the Seahorse, styling himself a man of scientific inclination, billed the men each a share equal to his own in pursuit of nightly dinner discourse with the lens and compassman. The Royal Society, taking this as an underhanded recruitment of misspent funds from a rogue officer, raised quite a stink. Eventually, Mason, Dixon, and Smith come to a mutual understanding, the pair apologizing for the misapprehension, and they end up dining in the mess. Only days before setting sail, the Navy tells Smith, Do not sail to Ben Coolin in Sumatra. The French have taken control there. They decide that the South African Cape, though curiously abandoned by other observers, will make for serviceable records of the transit and substitute. As they proceed southerly, this seems to be going smoothly, if a bit tense, when a French vessel, the Le Grand, is seen. The duo and reverend make quick work of learning naval medicine and practice their sphincter exercises below deck while the battle surges overhead. In this crucible of blood and terror and nausea, the astronomers' links of friendship are forged and hardened beyond difference in, in religious upbringing or social prowess. The skirmish, started for no cause except a peculiar bellicosity of the French ship, soon ends, either because France is not at war with the sciences, which would go down in naval history, or because they mistook a spare mast for reinforcements from the British. When night falls, Mason and Dixon, making the metaphorical literal, brace upon each other as crutches as they stumble to their cabin. They arrive in Plymouth and prepare to write to the Royal Society as justification for their delay in departure and adjustment of destination. They recognize now is when they decide either to call the partnership quits or to continue on together. Manly as ever, they refrain from speaking candidly, instead complimenting one another's religions. They sit drinking, discussing, untangling the events that had just occurred. Why didn't the powers that be have a simple conversation before they set off? Why would the French Empire fear a, sim a single jackass frigate? Mason wonders of cross timelines, misplaced history, while Dixon for once leans conspiratorial.
Whatever betrayal may or may not have taken place to put them in that ship's hold, it pales compared to the response to their plea for understanding. The society clearly has appraised them as scan artists, making tales up for the sake of fleeing their obligations. The pair cannot decide whose mentor has betrayed which of them, but prepare for the other shoe either way. All right. Um, thank you. That was that was great. Um, Kate, did you want? So we talked about this uh, a minute ago before we started the recording, and and the the first line of this book is, I, I think, just absolutely stunning. Um, Kate, you volunteered to uh, read that one for us. Would you mind going ahead and doing that? Absolutely. Chapter one begins thusly. Snowballs have flown their arcs, starred the sides of outbuildings, as of cousins, carried hats away into the brisk wind off Delaware. The sleds are brought in and their runners carefully dried and greased, shoes deposited in the back hall, a stockinged foot descent made upon the great kitchen in a purposeful dither since morning, punctuated by the ringing lids of various boilers and stewing pots fragrant with pie spices, peeled fruits, suet, heated sugar, the children, having all upon the fly among rhythmic slaps of butter and spoon, coaxed and stolen what they might proceed, as upon each afternoon, all this snowy advent, to a comfortable room at the rear of the house, years since given over to their carefree assaults. So, I, I don't know about y'all, I as much as Gravity's Rainbow kind of gets the credit of the best like opening line i i think this might actually be in my opinion more impactful um not to take anything away from the you know screaming comes across the sky i think that's an iconic line um i just i just think that what he does in this sentence you know it's a longer sentence um but it i think so perfectly encapsulates and sets the tone for everything that's to come in this book oh yeah i agree completely um like the the warmth that most people will talk about experiencing reading Mason and Dixon and like the sheer sort of human level of the book is pretty perfectly established in that as he just takes the most poetic way possible to describe children playing outside in the snow and then coming back inside to to have dinner with their family. There is uh, some similarities between the Gravity's Rainbow opening and the opening of this book. I mean... Snowballs have flown their arcs. Um, you know, it's describing the flight of an, an inanimate, inanimate object. Uh, you know, and the V two rockets would have also had an arc in their flight. I think the Pinchin Wiki kind of points that out, but um, there are some similarities between the two openings. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, even in a broader sense, getting right along to talking about food in the same way that Gravity's Rainbow opens. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. Can't be at better tasting food, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, now. A little bit of banana goes a long way. <laughs> banana, everything is the minimum. <laughs> <laughs> um. So uh, let's let's start at the beginning, uh, kind of not even narratively, but I want to talk about um a, a couple of things about how this book is written and how that impacts the story itself. So I think that the most um, noticeable feature of this for anyone who has not read it yet is the way in which it is written. It is written in an 18th century style. Um, so much so, and I think Kate mentioned this on, on either the 
lot 49 wrap up or maybe even an episode before when we were just casually mentioning it um it's done so well that there are scholars who consider this an 18th century novel because it is so accurately written in the style of that time that you could plug it into that time frame and it fits perfectly aside from some of the maybe you know anachronisms and um just kind of general weirdness of it that wasn't necessarily present in a lot of those works um but stylistically it is spot on for that yeah i remember my first time with this book just kind of you know not knowing what to do with it because it's not just that it's written in the style of a book from the 1700s it's also written in the style of the dialogue of a book from the 1700s spelling is really up for you know opinion in this book it's not consistent page to page it's uh e's are often alighted in favor of apostrophes in ways that actually don't you know further a uh, description of pronunciation it's just uh, this incredible combination of accurate dialect but completely inaccurate writing style yeah i mean continuing even to to a further point in the dialogue like accents are also represented accurately if if there's a character from a different part of england for example mason and dixon have very different ways of speaking that's represented just in the way that words are spelled and the way that sentences are constructed yeah, and I mean, the prose of this novel, um, it is it is written as if it's all being said out loud, which seems kind of obvious, but when you think about it, there's not a lot of, like, descriptions of settings, um, there's not a lot of descriptions of people, you know, it, it's it's told in a way that, that's a very, like, verbal storytelling style, um, which I'm not 100% sure how common that was for 18th century novels, but I do think that a lot of 18th century novels probably had more descriptions and we're less like verbally based, I would say. Yeah. And so that brings us to the other part of this that kind of sets it apart is its use of uh, frame narrative in, in having Cherry Coke tell the story, not only to us as the reader, but also to the kids that he is staying with um, rather than the house that he's staying with in order to stay at the house. Um, it's not a very commonly used um literary device at least not in my experience um i i think i may have read a few other books here and there that are uh, that make use of it not to the extent that this does i think a lot of times there's other um you know smaller stories within the story i mean, lot 49 did it with the the courier's tragedy but um the the way he does it is just so perfectly executed that it, it like like luke was saying like it feels more like someone's just telling the story to you than rather rather than you're reading a book. So it, it really kind of, I think it, it adds to, it kind of adds a level of immersion that would otherwise be missing. Yeah, and for for any first-time readers, I, I strongly recommend keeping an eye on where in the frame narrative the book is at any given point. Is it coming from the parlor room? Is it coming from the thoughts of the reverend is it coming from the story or is it coming from somewhere else which especially becomes which we'll obviously get into further down the book but especially becomes more important when like the ghastly fop gets introduced and you have multiple 
layers of, of frame narrative working over the top of one another, um, keeping an eye on, on where the chapters are starting and, and who's actually involved in the frame at any given moment is incredibly important as far as being able to follow along with what Pinchon is doing. Yeah, so I, for anyone who, who didn't listen to the Lot 49 wrap-up and is new to this book, um, it's it's important, I think, to not uh, not get frustrated if you get a little bit lost in, in this. I know the first time I read it, um, I repeatedly had to go back and, and kind of backtrack to kind of pick up like, like what Will and Kate were saying um, to kind of realign myself with where in the narrative things were taking place and, and what part of Cherry Coke's storytelling is this happening and, and whose perspective are we seeing this from and so on and so forth. So, and even with this, this subsequent read through and, and doing it for this podcast, I still was going back every now and then to, to kind of check myself and make sure I knew, you know, where I was. That being said, I did find it a little bit easier this time um, with with the language itself um, and, and getting used to that didn't take as much effort uh, as it did the first time. I, th- I think once you've kind of read through the book and you get a feel for how the, the language works and how he's using the words he's using... Um, it, it makes it a little bit easier to, you know, stay with it and, and keep a, a pretty good flow through it. Yeah, for, for all the chaos of the, you know, mixed capitalization and the, the contrasting uh, neologisms and archaisms, um, it really is, it is a dialect of English. You read it and with just a little bit of practice, it, it does read quite transparently and it's not something to worry about unless it's you know taken you forever on the first chapter yeah and and on that note something that helped me a little bit with this subsequent read through of it uh, and i found this on the the pension wiki is regarding the capitalization of of letters because you know like uh, like will had mentioned earlier you know you have all these random words that, that are capitalized and when you're looking at it you know for the first time it seems wrong almost because we're not used to that um the the way it's done, at least according to the pension wiki, is that they are the capitalizations are used to, to differentiate homonyms. So nouns are capitalized and verbs are not. And keeping that in mind while I was reading through it this time actually kind of helped with um, understanding, you know, what specifically he was saying and, and understanding the reason for those words being capitalized and, and the emphasis that they put on the on each sentence. And obviously, like this podcast grew out of the pinch on subreddit um a lot of people when the pinch on subreddit did its group read i think that was last year maybe the year before mentioned that reading it out loud helped them make that conversion in their mind as well so if you're finding it particularly hard to do that just within your own head a lot of people have found pretty it to be pretty successful to try reading a paragraph or even a page or two out loud to kind of help their brain switch over that's true for a lot of pinch as well i would say i mean there's times when I've those passages in Gravity's Rainbow in the past that I've struggled with, and after reading them out loud, uh, they kind of became a little bit more legible. Yeah, and and the audiobook apparently, I think it was Will um, that was saying the audiobook is is really really good and very helpful. I don't have a copy of it unfortunately, um, but I have heard good things about it. So maybe go that route if if you know reading it is a little bit of a challenge. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I. I'd even go so far to say that it, this is this is a book that, while it's incredibly long and 
you know, experimental in most ways. It's also one that, you know, if you're going to pollute a nice quiet evening in with the family or friends with you reading aloud, it's not going to be terribly disturbing. It's it's quite yeah. It's it's when it's re read aloud, it comes across as old-timey and charming. It doesn't come across as erudite and pretentious. It's a uh, it, it, you know, you can assume the role of the reverend and just sit and tell the story of him telling the story. That's true. And and as someone with with two young kids, like I can absolutely vouch for that. There's not the there's not a lot of i mean at least in the first five chapters and even going through it you know from my last reading i don't remember anything as uh as graphic as some of the scenes in gravity's rainbow or against the day so it's it's yeah if if you're if you have kids and you're you're at that point where you're kind of needing to read it out loud or you just want to because it's a different experience you know there's really nothing i i think that would cause concern if, if one of your kids walked in and and heard you or if your partner came in you, you know it's a little easier to explain away like what you're reading. You don't have to, you know, explain certain scenes in like Gravity's Rainbow and why that exists in there. Um, so to to kind of start our discussion, uh, what I wanted to talk about first was uh, going back to the frame narrative. Is um, I, I kind of took it and and I wanted to know how y'all took this as well as um, very much a, a pinch on self insert. Um, used to kind of discuss the um, the process of being an author and and kind of the different aspects of that. Like for instance, he talks about you know he, when Cherry Coke is talking to the the kids, uh, it's it's mentioned that um, on page six, as long as he can keep the children amused, he may remain. So he has this kind of you know as a as an author as a storyteller, like his purpose is to entertain and the moment that that no longer is a possibility, then, you know, you're kind of out on your own. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other part of it too, is being an author of history who gets to tell history. Where do we learn history from? I mean, there are going to be a lot of moments. There's, there's enough just in the first five chapters where Cherry Coke should not have access to the information that he does. Cause he's not in the room. You can say that probably Mason or Dixon told him about it later, but what you'll find as you go through the book is that there are a lot of points of view being presented that the narrator would not have been in the room for when they happened. And so as a result, you have these different ideas of different outcomes in history, different interpretations of history, where history comes from, who gets to write it down. If it's written down, does that make it more true than what actually happened? Those are all very big thematic ideas that Pinchon is playing with through the book. And to a certain degree, it even comes through in you, the reader, participating in that process. What do you remember from this? How would you sum up this? What meaning would you pull out of this area or that area? And where does this book you know, lie in contention with the actual story of the drawing of the Mason and Dixon line? Obviously, this is a fictionalized account, but not entirely. Um, so it, it, I think it is certainly about being an author, but also inviting the reader to consider who gets to be authors of history in particular, and where we end up with our interpretations of history as a result of who chooses to be an author or who gets to be one. Yeah, and the, the first explicit sign of that we see is right in the first chapter, where Cherry Coke is basically meandering, trying to decide 
how much he wants to dress up his story to his uh, nephews. You know, it. he was hanged, but he survived. And then he was in jail. And then he went mad. And how much of that is true? How much of it is just his dad had a problem with him? How much of it is he was a reverend who wrote some political things? Who, who knows? We can't know. Or how much of it is just a guy trying desperately to, to keep up his room and board? He has yeah, a exactly. distinct incentive to keep doing mm -hmm. this. Yeah, you got to know your audience and keep them entertained. <laughs> yeah, and you see, you see that extend past the, the explicit audience of the twins with, you know, Tenebrae speaking up and Uncle Ives jumping in and later on everyone else coming into the room. Yeah, and then a little later, um, uh, what, I, what I found to be a really interesting um, passage in, in this, in, in thinking about it as this introduction kind of being uh, Pinchon or, or Cherry Coke, you know, kind of relating the authorial experience and, and talking about the, the telling of stories. And, and, you know, like Kate mentioned about, um, you know, who, who gets to tell the story and who gets to, you know, whose interpretation are you getting and how that, how that affects the story. Um, on, on page eight, um, I just want to read this paragraph. It, uh, it was not too many years before the war. What we were doing out in that country together was brave, scientific beyond my understanding, and ultimately meaningless. We were putting a straight line through the heart of the wilderness, eight yards wide and due west, in order to separate two proprietorships, granted when the world was yet feudal, and but eight years later to be nullified by the war for independence. So the idea that all this, all this work, all this effort was put into what was ultimately a, a pointless endeavor, the the whole purpose of the, of them creating this line and and mapping out this disputed territory just ended up being null and void by the end of it but i think in looking at that in this in the storytelling kind of idea or or mindset it it kind of goes to show that with with a story it doesn't have to be about you know, everything coming together at the end and, and the happy ending and everything, all the loose ends get tied together. It can be just about the journey, not the destination. Yeah, I think it's it's hard to ignore that, especially when you, you know, the, the next thing that the reverend's talking about is alluding to the idea that he's not actually a reverend. He's just dressed up as one. It's a personical disguise. You know, the the campaign to cut the line through that parallel didn't matter but it still happened and just like he's not a real reverend but he still still did all the things to make him look like one what's the difference and and in the end you know whether or not the line had you know meaning and or had value um the fact of the matter is by the end of the, of of everything that happens you have this this friendship that's forged and the story that's told you know, of, of the two of them coming together and things that they experienced along the way, not necessarily, it doesn't have to be about, you know, everything, you know, the line had this purpose and it ultimately served history and, you know, made everything better or worse or whatever the case may be. It's, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that. It can just be that here's this wonderful story about these two guys who don't know each other uh, and are coming from essentially opposing ideologies, but find a way to become friends and, and more than friends, really. And I think by the end of it, you know, they, they have this very deep bond that is formed by the end of the book. 
absolutely. I mean, you can even look at the idea of the journey, not the destination, being a motivator behind how they end up in this position in the first place. Because they don't get to the destination that they were supposed to. They're way late on the journey and they have to turn around. And it's the the process of that waylaying on the journey and the unexpected nature of it that leads them to consider whether or not they're supposed to be around one another for a longer period or for something more important in the first place, which is a big part of what the the end of this first chunk of chapters really circles around. Yeah, and if I think I if uh if the book was actually about the destination rather than the journey, you would think it would um start closer to them creating the line. Um, you know, we get uh, a fair amount of chapters before they're even in America, um, which I, I enjoy those parts a lot. Um, but, you know, they're not... If if the story is about Mason and Dixon creating the Mason and Dixon line, it starts in a very um, kind of random or... I mean, it starts whenever they meet each other, but, you know, it, it could have started much later. Uh, and it, the and the the part about the line would not be any different so yeah i mean it, it, you wouldn't even need the have the need for the the frame narrative aspect of it if that was what pinchon was interested in doing it could just be a, a more direct exposition of these two men drawing drawing the line but because of the fact that it's about a man specifically telling a story for as long as he possibly can so he can continue staying in a house that's that's i think that's a very purposeful decision on on behalf of pinchon and how to present the story as a whole so before we move on past the the premise of the the frame narrative, what do you all make of the the autobiographical reading of Wick's Cherry Coke, and in particular the uh, the crime they styled anonymity feature? Is that uh, is that Wanda Tanaski? Dun dun dun. That's I I you know. I think before we answer that, if uh, for anyone who's not familiar with the Wanda Tanaski thing, do you want to, Will, do you want to kind of explain briefly that whole bizarre story? I, I cannot. Uh, do, do any of you have a decent understanding of the Wanda Tanaski letters? Um, it, Wanda Tanaski was supposedly this bag lady who lived under, like, I think a a bridge, I believe, yeah, in a in an area of Northern California. Um, that was the theory behind this this character that was created. In, in reality, most people believe that uh, Thomas Pinchon was adopting this particular character to write a series of letters that he sent to um, magazines and newspapers in the eighties, and they've been collected later and and published as a separate thing so if you want to read all of them together you can um but it was essentially a series of observations on like local artists writers like politicians um and a lot of people think that the humor and the polished nature of what was being written there makes it impossible for it to be the woman that it was supposed to be um, and so Pinchon is, is most commonly brought up uh, th- to be the actual writer of those letters. It's never been proven, um, but a lot of other people have who were potentially closer to the actual goings-on there have said that it was, it was Pinchon or that they think it was Pinchon. Um, you know, they, they, Tanaski talks about Boeing in the letters, 
So you have Pinchon's background in Boeing there. Um, and so there, there are other individual matches between the two, basically, if, if, you, if you do a deep dive into specifically what is, is mentioned. It, it also, it kind of dovetails out of there because I think eventually they did find out it was, um, I can't remember the guy's name. It was a different author and he ended up like, he had a lot of mental health issues or something. I think if I remember right, he killed his wife and then killed himself shortly thereafter. And they found what was believed to be the typewriter that wrote all the letters in his house. Um, but it wasn't the first time that, that Pinchon was accused of being someone else or, or vice versa. I think someone also made the accusation that he was JD Salinger. Um, and I think if I'm, if I recall correctly in, in one of the Tanaski letters, I think he said, or, or she, the, you know, supposing that Wanda Tanaski was a real person that I think it was that Pinchon and, and, and Gaddis were the same person. Something like that. They, there was some weird, uh, you know, f- uh, alluded connection between them. But I remember when Pinchon was accused of being J.D. Salinger, I think he actually responded to that with something to the effect of nice try, but no. <laughs> um, in one of his rare kind of like reaching out to clarify something moments. Um, but anyways, so <laughs> I don't want to go too often into the weeds. The Wanda Tanaski thing is a wild ride. I think there's a Wikipedia article on it. Go go find it and read it because it's, it's absolutely bizarre. Um. But I mean, as far to go back to Will's question, um, what was so? Just to make sure I understand it right, are you wondering like how we how we are reading that particular the crime of anonymity kind of thing in relation to Pinchon himself? Yeah, whether or not you believe that Tanaski was Pinchon, I I I don't think it was just from only because I, I if I'm remembering right when I went on a rabbit hole about it, I think they found the typewriter in that other guy's apartment after he died and they were able to pretty conclusively link it to him. But I do think that line does have some reference to him in regards to how he um, kind of, I remember, I think it was on the books of some substance podcast. They were talking to the guy that runs the waste mailing site about lot 49. And he, he had mentioned that Pinchon was really paranoid after it came out and Gravity's Rainbow came out, he, I think he was under the, he kind of, I guess, had convinced himself that he put too much out there as far as what he had kind of gathered from Boeing and was afraid that it was going to come back on him and that, you know, the powers that be may be looking for him. Um, so I think that that might be somewhat of an illusion to that on, on that end, but um, I'm curious to hear what, what Kate and Luke think. I mean, I think, I think there is definitely probably some intentional poking fun at that story because it was wrapped up by the time this book came out but as far as i'm aware the evidence for i think it's tom hawkins is the one that they think yes is yes that's the name yeah i believe that the the circumstantial evidence certainly because no one's ever actually going to figure out for sure is pretty strong like tom hawkins lived in the same county um was a fan of a lot of postmodernist writers as well also worked for boeing um they're was a fair amount of of circumstantial evidence pointing to him. So I think it it could easily just be pinch on playing into the rumors of, about himself and and just sort of looking back on that period that had ended only a couple years, well, almost 10 years prior and just kind of saying oh, that was wild. Does anyone remember that or like maybe just leaving a, a joke in there for for people who followed his career? 
Yeah, that's basically how I interpret it, is at the very least, you know, it's poking fun at the idea that, hey, you know, I, I you think that you have liberty, but instead you're just held by whatever previous, uh, you know, decisions you made. You know, he can't talk about certain things because he worked with Boeing and he, you know, they have a file on him kind of thing. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think this was also around the time that was it CNN claimed they had a picture of him that they were going to put out on a, on a news broadcast. And he actually got to the point of like calling them and um, basically telling them like, don't I, you know, I, I'm not reclusive. I just don't like being photographed and I, I like to keep my personal life personal. I, I think that was around this like mid nineties era and, and that may yeah. play into it as well. That was an actual news report that was being put out for the release of Mason and Dixon. That's what it was, CNN, yeah. yeah, CNN wanted to track him down and, and like interview him and, and I guess try and trick him into doing a public appearance. <laughs> and um, they, the best part of that video, which you can watch it, it's on YouTube, is they show a random shot of just New York City like street traffic. Yeah. And, and they say, well, we're not going to show the photo of him that we have because he kindly requested that we do not. He is one of the people in this crowd. Yeah. Which one he is, we won't tell you. Dozens of people front <laughs> and back facing. Yeah. That was the thing with the Inherent Vice movie as well. Is there was a rumor that he yeah. was an extra in the movie or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I think Joaquin Phoenix was claiming. No, no, it wasn't. It was Josh Brolin claimed he was an extra in there, and then P.T. Anderson said, "No, he's he wasn't. You know, he was on set, but he was never on camera, kind of thing." So I, I, I can't help but think that he's partly controlling that too, just to get a laugh. You know, like he he knows that he could easily insert himself in there, and then have two different sides say two different things, just so that no one ever really knows the truth. But he does, and he can laugh about it while the rest of us try to figure it out. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I mean, there there's even a background extra in that movie that looks a lot like a younger Pinchon if the photo from the National Enquirer is is actually him. Um and I think that probably what started as just a desire to not deal with the media very quickly became something that he realized he could have fun with and mess with people. And that's I think where it's pretty much stayed since then. Um so I think the last thing I wanted to bring up regarding the, the kind of self insert um, frame narrative. Let me see. I need to go back and kind of reread that particular line, but um, yeah, so there was another, I think the last line that I, I kind of felt had a reference to that um, being an author um, and it's, it's place in society on page 22. Uh, there's the line, nonetheless, however accomplished, our lives are never settled. We go on as tail wagging, uh, I'm going to butcher this word, uh, Scherzeradze's ever a step away from the dread palm leaf, nightly delaying the blades of our masters by telling back to them a tale, tale tales of their humanity. Um, so that kind of, you know, that kind of like telling a story to keep your room and board, you know, also telling a story to save your ass at the end of the day, you know, if it's what you can do and if it's what you're good at, then, you know, you, you have that control over certain situations. Yeah. And that word is Scheherazade. Um, Scheherazade. Yeah, Thank you. I should know that because my family's German, but it's, it, she's not going to hear me. Correctly. <laughs> she's the narrator of the thousand and one Arabian nights. Um, uh, okay. That's, 
which if you're familiar with the frame narrative of a hundred or thousand and one Arabian Nights, it is a woman who has been wed to um I think it's a sultan who is known for murdering every single per- woman that he is wed to. And she tricks him into this bargain where if he enjoys the stories that she tells at the end of the day until he falls asleep, then she won't be murdered. And so the reason why it's a series of stories, one after the other after the other, is that she's continuing to try and basically elongate her stay of execution by entertaining her husband. Yeah, and the, you know, the Thousand and One Arabian Nights is, you know, there, there's, you know, more than a thousand, less than a thousand. Who knows how many tales there are, but in almost all of the popular <laughs> compilations, the the end of that frame narrative is uh, Scheherazade having uh, uh, essentially won the undying love of her husband and no longer having to uh, fear for, you know, the next morning. And, you know, you gotta wonder, with the, with the possibly autobiographical frame narrative combined with just name-dropping Scheherazade within the first three chapters, you know, is that supposed to be meaningful? Oh, I'm sure it is. So the, the next thing I wanted to bring up, um, this, I, I think with a lot of Pinchon's work, um, there's, there's the kind of ongoing discussion of predestination and free will. And we kind of touched on this with, with Lot 49 as well, but it, it also shows up in here. The, the names Wesley and Whitefield that, that first pop up on page nine, um, I, I looked into them, and I'm, I'm, I want to do more research on them because I wasn't familiar with them at all. But they are basically, both were um, religious figures at the time. I think both were preachers or reverends. Um, one was, uh, Wesley was a proponent of predestination, and, and Whitefield was a proponent of free will. And I think it's, it didn't surprise me at all that he would insert something like, something like this related to those two concepts this early in this book. And I think, you know, like I said, it comes up in a lot of his books, but um, I think it's always interesting to have his dynamic and that, in, that inclusion of, of those concepts into his work and, and how they uh, influence, in this case, Mason and Dixon, because I think both, you know, are on opposite ends of that. Uh, so I, I kind of wanted to get y'all's thoughts on that. Yeah, just as like background information, um, George Whitefield was an Anglican reverend, and then uh, Wesley is most likely a reference to the cleric John Wesley, who, yeah, who um, was originally part of the Church of England, but then founded the Methodist movement. Um, and that is very much a, a opposite ends of the spectrum as far as as far as predestination. So you are correct in, in that that conflict being there. That's what I gathered, yeah. But as far as its bearing on the text, I think that um, it, there, there is a, a pretty explicit conversation between Mason and Dixon after the battle in which the, the seahorse is destroyed mostly, but they live, where they basically ask this question, where they, they say, like, were we fated to meet one another? Were we fated to... Uh, do something together because the the fact that we're alive, the fact that the ship was attacked in the first place, the fact that the ship wasn't destroyed completely, it it just doesn't make sense. And that's where a lot of the 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 lightly conspiratorial elements come in in, in chapters four and five. 
Um, but more so, it gets to them questioning whether or not they're they're meant to be drawn towards one another, which pushes towards a a a predestination argument. And if I'm not mistaken, it is brought up by um, the the one of the pair that doesn't believe in that religiously. And so it's almost as if they're they're kind of undergoing an opposite conversion process where something has has convinced him enough that there there may be something predestined here because the the facts of it all just just don't add up. Uh, it doesn't make sense why things would have happened the way they happened if that wasn't the case. So I think it I think it's it's definitely going into the the wider thematic elements of the book, this idea of not just who writes history, but also how does history happen? I think it's a question that gets posed as two opposing views. And there's not really, as far as I remember from my previous reading of the book, there's not really a hard answer there. It isn't as if Pinchon tells you that things are predestined. I mean, Pinchon is um, descended from from a, a, a quite f- famous um, reverend in the United States who who had his tract banned, but I don't believe that that he's making advocation for for predestination entirely. I think it's it's another question of not just who gets to write history, who gets to pose history to to the people who weren't there when it happened, but also how do these things happen in the first place? How do these people end up together? Is it a matter of coincidence or is there something deeper at play? Is there a is there a capital T they there that's that's getting them together and and putting them into these situations where they're the only ones who could have would have taken this action or, or done this particular thing. Yeah, and it, within the, the context of his other two big books, as, you know, the big three, they're often called, um, I, I see the discussion of predestination and free will in this book. Yes, it, it, it was a contemporaneous religious argument that was very meaningful, but this is at the very beginning of what we call modernity. Well, not the very beginning, but the beginning of what we call modernity. And as um, as scientific tools were developed, as understandings of the world around us, there was this simultaneous kind of split ideology where we could secularly understand the world. We could predict what could happen. We could we could set things in motion and control them. Um, and at the same time, an embracing of complete liberty, complete free will. And it, most of that, I believe, grew out of, you know, argument over religion. You know, basically the secular people were the more scientific ones and they wanted to not be treated as though they were pawns of the religious but as a result, it led to this weird split way of thinking where the world is entirely caused. Things are predestined. However, people are not predestined. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue that continually comes up throughout this book in particular, as well as the rest of his big novels. Yeah, what I'm what I'm about to say is maybe perhaps neither here nor there, but uh, deism is addressed in this book a fair amount, and um, I think a lot of our listeners will know this. But uh, deism was very popular among the founding fathers, and it was a it's a it's a uh, a religious belief, a, a type of Christianity, I guess, where um, 
God is said to have created the worlds uh, as if it was like a machine and just kind of let, uh, let it run uh, and abdicated any any direct role in the um, goings on of man and, and animals and stuff. Um, <clears throat> which is interesting to think about in the context of um, free will versus uh, determinism. Um, I don't know. It is. It it's almost a form of atheism or agnosticism as well, which um, is interesting to think about as well. Because um, you know, religion at this time, especially in England, I want to say, but even in the new colonies in America, religion was such a major deal. Um, there was, you know, people would argue about it. People would start wars over religion and stuff like that. So, well, I think you could even now that I'm I'm kind of thinking about that concept about the you know deism being as big as it was then if you're know, looking at taking that concept like you explained it luke you know of of the idea of of god creating everything you know like a, like a machine as you said and then and then stepping back to let it do its thing um you know maybe something like the the learned english dog that comes in a little bit later you know was i, I you could maybe make the argument that it's it's kind of pushing that idea like you know this this dog or maybe maybe a better example would be the duck later on but you know whether or not this dog was given that intellect that he has by its creator who then stepped back to see how it is and you know will a dog still be a dog if given the opportunity is it going to go down that path or is it going to become something else you know i, I think that's kind of a I, that just popped into my mind about how that would work in that idea with with deism and i think the other interesting sort of wrinkle that you can add specifically to talking about the the learned english dog that kind of combines what both will and luke have said is that if if deism is the case that the watchmaker analogy is exactly correct that there was a god who set up this machine and just allows things to to be brought to its its full end then the 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 LED is a perfect example of the age of science coming in and deliberately messing with that plan. Because as far as I remember, if I'm correct, the, the, the dog kind of posits this idea that man wanted dogs to be more and more man-like. They, they kept praising them for like behaviors or, or things that, that were similar to humanity. That's what they found cute. That's what they found endearing. And so they kept pushing that to its natural conclusion until finally you end up with a talking dog. What's more, what's more manlike, you know, what's more manlike in a possibility that than giving the dog the ability to actually reason and think and communicate, which would almost certainly be in exact opposition to what a, a deity would have set up in place. So looking at it as the age of science, you can really take a view of it that he's making an example here that the age of science directly disrupts religious belief and directly disrupts what even something close to atheism like deism posits as an opportunity which brings up further interesting questions about whether or not predestination is true we live in this age of science that can disrupt the very plans of god but perhaps we're still disruptable ourselves when those plans come to fruition yeah and and kind of to invert that a little bit you know, this is the learned English dog, learned English dog who is a talking dog. You know, th th this book, in playing with the the pre-modern 
is able to kind of get away with these fantastical elements. And in some ways, while, while the dog is sitting here explaining that, well, Darwinism, which has not been summarized yet effectively, but Darwinism is why I am the way I am. Uh, that, that, that is in itself commenting on the nature of those, um, those locuses of control on history that uh, Wick's Cherry Coke is as well. You know, he, he's sitting there making up a good story for his kids or for his nephews. Um, and this dog is sitting around making up stories that might be true, might not be true, might not even be a talking dog. There could be that the jellos are somehow hidden somewhere at all points where he speaks. We don't know that. Yeah, I mean, he does, you know, mention adding in, you know, certain elements into his story to keep the kids entertained, which, you know, as as we mentioned, is his meal ticket, essentially. So, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he's just, you know, throwing in, you know, these these goofy things like a talking dog to keep the kids entertained. Especially when one considers that he was not here for when this was happening. Mm-hmm. Which really gets to the further point of the fact that there is a massive frame narrative, as we discussed at the top of the show, but you can even take that concept down to these individual moments, these individual scenes, sometimes even sentences, where you consider what is the frame here, you know, what, what, is, the, what is the purpose of this inclusion, why is it being said, is this real, is it not, which once again gets back to this idea of, of who is giving us our history, who writes it, and do we believe it, or... Do we do we think that there's an alternate reason for it to be there? Yeah, because I mean, you kind of have to consider, you know, if, if he wasn't there, how many, you know, like layers of of filtration has this story gone through before it got to his version of it? You know, it's like a never-ending game of telephone where, you know, he heard it from someone who heard it from someone who heard it from someone who was there, you know, mm-hmm. and and it just by the end you know it's just become this garbled thing where there's a talking dog that appears out of the out of the mist one night while they're while they're walking around the city yeah the the that chapter 3 even opens with him essentially saying i might have written uh, look mason and dixon told me about their meeting and then i started writing it and i might have fallen asleep and started dreaming and just kind of written my dreams into the story anyway too yeah Something that I, I, I really like about not just I, I, you can make the argument for all of Penjohn's books being absolutely hilarious at times, but I think Mason and Dixon, there's a, a lot more humor that's present throughout. Um, I think that kind of lends to its overall lightheartedness. It's not as bleak or or um, nihilistic as some of his other works, but the the humor that's peppered throughout here both. And, and things people say and the, these kind of weird ties into modern culture, like the on on page 10 where he, he's, um, there's the line, keep away from harmful substances, in particular coffee, tobacco, and Indian hemp, which is you know basically just like a, a don't do drugs phrasing for the, you know, in the, in the 18th century. Um, I think the, the pinch on wiki had it, uh, had a specific mention of the Bill Clinton, like I did not inhale somewhere. Mm-hmm. As, as one of the things I think it's well. in the first chapter yeah well what it what it be, says yeah. after stay away from Indian hemp is that if you have to use the last one then do not inhale 
do not inhale. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, like all these little just goofy things. And then later on, there's the there's the whole there's the kind of 18th century equivalent of uh, beer before liquor, where it's great before grain, but ne'er the twain and vine with corn. Beware the morn. Yeah, I actually I, I've I haven't come to any conclusions based on this line of reasoning, but I do feel like there is something about the grape and the grain distinction in this book that is supposed to be. Uh, meaningful when it comes to characterization. Well, that's that. Yeah, that very well could be because I think, if I remember correctly, Mason and Dixon are both favor the one of the two and not the other. And I'm wondering if that's like a societal thing, like you know, the, the people who drink wine versus the people who drink liquor. Um, I didn't find anything about that though. It could be related to their religion, their their denominations of Christianity as well. I'm not an expert on that, but I mean, could Quakers, be. I would imagine, maybe have different habits than whatever Mason was. Could also be a, a comment on their social status. One is considered to be the, the drink of more wealthy mm-hmm. people. Yeah, it, historically, you know, grain is grown for everything in massive quantities. So fermenting it into beer and then from there... Um, distilling it into liquor, whiskey, is not not very expensive. And, uh, you know, the grape is something that requires a ton of care and uh, established vineyards. Yeah, and, it's a refined kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, the British Isles, to my knowledge, don't grow a significant amount of grapes uh, but they do produce a lot of grain for their own, well, at this point, their own liquor production, mostly. Um, and so between the two, grape would be more associated with the continent, for sure. And the grape would be associated with wealth, because not only is it, you know, more expensive to take fruit and turn it into a beverage compared to a seed, but it's also, uh, you know, you have to import it at least across the channel. Yeah. So at the at the end of chapter two, because chapter two is in, it's just basically two letters from, uh, from and to Mason and Dixon. Um, I, I I found this fascinating, and I just wanted to kind of share it with uh, you know anybody who's listening and, and wasn't aware of this. So it, it makes a mention at the end in uh, in Mason's letter. He talks about. Uh, John Dolland and his marvelous achromatics is how he refers to them. Um, and I ended up going on this whole deep dive to kind of learn a little bit more about that. And it was really cool. What I, what I learned was that he, he made, he was an, uh, I think he was an optician. Um, and he created these achromatic lenses, which what they do essentially is there's a, a dual set of lenses. One is um, concave and one is convex. And they, the way they filter uh, red and blue um, wavelengths allowed for more precise focus in the lenses. So it really helped to uh, further the science of, of things like astronomy, where you, you know, the more focus you have, the better you can observe these celestial bodies and, and even things on, you know, on earth, you know, you magnify better and see better. Um, but in, in, in reading about it, it also had me thinking about you know, that, that duality that exists in a lot of Pinchon's work and especially in here, but also in stuff like against the day, you know, where you have these two, um, opposing 
characters or ideas that that end up working in conjunction with each other. Um, and I, I just thought that was really interesting. One of those little things that's just in there, and it's just this offhanded reference, but the wealth of knowledge that you can gain from reading uh, his work and, and diving into those little rabbit holes is just so fascinating. So I just I just looked this up, and it seems like John Dolland was uh, the son of Huguenot refugees. So he was a, you know, of French Puritan stock. Mister Ellicott, I can't find anything about, but his family was Cornish. So I'm guessing they're Anglican, probably. And uh, Mister Bird was uh, a, a noted um, Quaker. And I'm not sure about the Anglican Church at this point in time, um, or or today, honestly. Um, but both the Huguenots and um, the Quakers were believers in determinism. And sandwiching those two inventors around the man who invented essentially the modern clock escapement is something. Uh, the Anglican Church is not a believer in determinism or predestination. Okay, thank you. In which case, to me at least, that would make it more notable that he was in the middle. But I can't find his religion, so I'm not saying anything. Um, okay, so I wanted to bring this to run this past y'all because I, I, this popped into my head while reading this, and I I had to bring it up and see what y'all thought about this. And I may be way off base and this is just my brain being weird in, in the ways that it's weird. I was getting this really weird, um, X-Files vibe specifically like Mulder and Scully from Mason and Dixon, it, just in their general characters. Like the idea that, that Mason, um, really buys into a lot of the pseudoscience, like the, like with the Oracle and, and other things that come along the way as a means of, I, I think, it initially starts with his desire to reunite with his wife, who is, I think it briefly gets mentioned in these first five chapters, but it comes up later on that his wife had died, you know, prior to the events of the story. But it's clear that he wants to reconnect with her in some way, whether it's, you know, having some kind of um, a spiritual reconnection with her while he's alive or reconnecting with her after he dies. And Dixon seems to like know better and not really believe in it, but he's just, he's curious about where all these little paths lead and he's willing to go down. Uh, similar to how, you know, Mulder is totally bought into all the pseudoscience stuff and, and desperately wants to believe that there's something out there. And, and Scully's just like, I mean, you're wrong, but sure, let's see where this goes. Uh, but becomes more convinced as, as things go. So I don't know if, if y'all see that connection or if I'm just making these weird connections, but I, that's something that came to me while reading this. Unfortunately, I've not seen the X Files, so I, I can't. Uh, yeah, no, I, I can't comment on that one. Oh, really? Oh, same. Yeah, I maybe saw one or two episodes in the '90s, but it's been a long time. I think the reason I thought it it was on it would have been on around the time he was wrapping things up on this because it started airing, I think, in '92 or three. Um, so I don't know if if listeners have anything to say on that i would love to hear that and, and it'd be nice to know i'm not alone in my crazy thoughts will did you have you seen x files did you have any no i mean it was before my time frankly mm. 
you all have homework. I think it's on Hulu, maybe. Go watch it. It's it's super cheesy sci-fi. You know, it's it it's a product of its time. It's got a lot of that early 90s kind of CGI. There's some episodes that hold up really well and and still hit hard and and are some somewhat scary at times. And there's others that are just absolute cornball tales from the crypt level of of cheese, but they kind of lean into it at times. The show ended terribly and they tried to bring it back and it just wasn't really the same, but it's it's good for most of its run. So um I think it I think it's what, a pretty safe bet that Pynchon would have at least seen a few episodes of it. I like to think so. It was I mean, it was huge at the time, like I said, that he was writing it or wrapping up on it. So I don't know how much influence it would have had, honestly, just because how how long he had been working on it. But it's just something that came to my mind. Um as far as throwbacks, because we've we've talked before about how Pension likes to insert characters and and different things into all of his books. Um in addition to the the Bodine, Bodine um character that we have who correct me if I'm wrong, there's a Bodine in I think every Pinchon novel. I'm not hundred percent on that. I, I'm I'm thinking for some reason of inherent vice and I'm not remembering I'm not remembering any Bodines, but I don't know. That's the one that I'm thinking too. I, I or or Bleeding Edge either. I can't think. There's Pig Bodine, um, and he's in Gravity's uh, Rainbow. He's in Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah. I thought there was a Bodine in Vineland also. There might be one in Vineland. I can't remember though. I can't either. But we have one here. Um, so we have we have that reference, and then we also have the inconvenience, not just the name, but the fact that it's also a ship. Yeah, um, gets brought up again. Which, um, for those of you who have read Against the Day, you'll know that reference. Yeah, and it's in the um, same. It's in the same chapter as the talking dog. Yes. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the uh, what I think is one of the best parts of the chapters that we read and that is the the scenes on the seahorse um just in a in a general sense how did y'all feel about that whole part of this uh five chapters i enjoyed that part a lot um we were talking about Gene Wolfe before we started uh, recording the episode, and I recently read Pirate Freedom by Wolfe, um, which has some similar passages, some descriptions of the amount of guns on a ship, where the guns are located, what pounds they are. Um, I think whenever I was growing up, um, I used to read a fair amount of like nautical... Uh, I think it might have been more YA than adult literature, but stuff about like sea battles and stuff from around this time. Um, so it's kind of a little, it's like, I have a a weird amount of familiarity with like some of the, some of the jargon and stuff. I really, I really enjoyed this part. Um, it is kind of, it is kind of montage like, um, cause the combat is not, is not described in a very like granular or like super detailed way. It's, it's kind of just a page or two, I want to say of, of, uh, combat. And then they're back in, back in the port. Uh, but it is probably one of the most exciting, if not the most exciting parts of the novel. Um, definitely probably the most violent, I would say. Yeah, the like, like you said, the combat itself is not discussed at length, but the amount of 
impact it has in, I, I think it's only a paragraph that really, maybe two, that really talks about the the battle itself. And it's it hits hard. Yes, yeah, it's, it's two or three, if you're being generous. But I'll, I'll be the dissenting opinion here, actually. And it's, I, don't, I don't have any um, reasons for this, but uh, I think just a combination of this being the, the least linear chapter thus far and maybe in the entire book um, in terms of just timeline of things uh, combined with the the jumping between you know relaying what Mason was relaying to relaying what the captain was relaying to guessing at the possible reasons for the French abandoning their attack um, for some reason, when I when I've read this chapter, I I feel uh, on one hand that there's a ton of real beauty in chapter four, but also that it covers the same ground repeatedly in a way that is fairly uncommon for Pynchon. And while I find those paragraphs that do describe the attack and the the work under the under the deck, um, gripping and intense and emotional. Uh, the rest I find kind of boring, tedious almost. One thing I found was interesting about this chapter, I think it's this chapter, where they seem to be paranoid about um, possible spies or people tipping off the French about where they're going. They seem kind of paranoid about the Royal Society. Uh, and their possible role and them being intercepted by the French. Uh, the more I think about it, you know, it is kind of, it made me question, you know, like why would somebody want to stop them from going to Sumatra and just doing some uh, astro astronomy uh, observations and stuff? Um, I can't really tell if it's an early, if it's an early example of, of them being paranoid for no reason or if there's a possible, you know, reason for them to be paranoid. I just can't come up with any any possible reasons. Yeah, I don't I don't think we're really given enough to substantiate that, but I think that might also be intentional. Um you know, having it having us as a reader kind of wondering, you know, is is there like with lot 49, you know, that that whole idea of is this is the paranoia real or is it just you know, is it just that? Is it just paranoia? Um I do think it's funny uh the the description of um of the captain captain smith when they basically ask like is this guy even a good captain the response is basically like well he's he's alive that counts for something <laughs> so it's and it's just so it's matter of fact but it also it has a very like that seems like the kind of thing that they would have said at that time like yeah the dude's alive so that's you know look at all the ones that aren't and you know that's your answer well i think to the point about the paranoia too is they because mason and dixon talk about it they're they're trying to figure out how they should respond to the royal society how they should you know go about understanding why this happened because there's just too many things that seem coincidental in it and they can't come up with a reasoning why that would have occurred either which is why they start thinking about you know predestination or there being some sort of divine intervention happening there to uh to have fated the vessel to get attacked in that way to to keep the two of them together which of course gets to the fact that they asked you know a a fortune teller for what the omens surrounding the vessel would be and they were told that it was going to get attacked so they 
they go into this journey with an understanding or at least a potential understanding that things are going to go wrong they do go wrong they can't figure out why they would have because nothing in it seems to make sense they can't figure out why the royal society would have would have messed with them and so they they end up having to to think to something more esoteric than just a simple conspiracy which in in a real you know top level reading astronomers looking to the stars for guidance and why things are happening to them it, it seems pretty fitting it does seem to be kind of an early example of them um being i mean maybe not it's i whatever the i mean i guess illogical would be the opposite of logical but it does seem like an early example of them overanalyzing and going beyond logic and um you know to like it, an early example of possible supernatural forces being at work in this novel which uh, is a recurring theme, I would say, uh, especially with Mason. Well, so do we do we have a year, a time when this takes place? This would have been. The letters aren't dated. Yeah, the letters don't have a date stamp. I want to say it might be 66, 1766, although I may be wrong about that. Well, I, th I think 65 is when Cherry Coke said they were surveying the line. Yeah, you might be right. It might be 64 then. I don't know. I, I think it would have been a few years before that. Regardless, um, it, it would have been either... It would have been around the Seven Years' War. And with that in mind, keeping in mind the, the perception of betrayal that uh, Mason has with regard to his letter to Bradley and the... The fact that it was an it, it's not a secret, you know, uh, Bodine and Mauve and, you know, Hepsi all know. And these are not these are not like people in the naval intelligence field know that there are all of these rogue ships setting sail off of Brest that are just attacking whoever's going by. The Navy tells them not to go to Ben Coolin. And so, you know, they set sail for South Africa anyway, but, you know, it's still the same direction. I have a... I, I totally see the paranoia as valid in this case, because... I mean, come on, why, why else would the French show up and then disappear? Why else would all of these things happen? And, of course, the answer is because that's life and random stuff occurs. Um, but it's very hard not to see it as, like Dixon implies, um, you know, they might have been martyrs. They might, they might have been sent to be killed for the sake of instigating another war. Yeah, very true. To answer your question, um, chapter three ends by saying that the seahorse set sail January 9th of 1761. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that, and that's, that's going to be right in the middle of the seven years war. So something else I thought was interesting about, um, about captain Smith and, and it kind of ties into the whole, I don't want to say it ties into the, the predestination or anything, you know, on, on that aspect of it, but I think it's an interesting look at, um, the scientific mind and the warfaring mind. And because they kind of mention in, you know, after that whole bit about, you know, oh, he's alive, that's why he's, you know, a good captain. They also talk about how he's, 
Captain Smith is is a man of science, or he wants to be a man of science, and that, that it's kind of implied that that may be what's gotten him out of a lot of scrapes, is that he's not thinking in a military mindset. He's thinking more as a scientist or scientifically. Um, but then it's, it's in the next paragraph, it's also implied that he also might just be lucky. Um, so in, in thinking about that and, and them getting out of that attack um, and, and coming out relatively, uns- I mean, a lot of people died, but, um, you know, how much of that was, you know, they were meant to get out of it or how much of it was because of the, the actions of, of the mind of science of, of the captain? Well, and you've, you've got to wonder about the, the similarities between this naval battle and the one discussed around the beginning of Lot 49 that inspired the Peter Pinguid Society with the, the ships that may or may not have been there, the engaging and disengaging at complete random without an actual campaign happening. I think the other thing... The other, the, the other big question, I think, for me is, is what a French ship smells like. Because that was how they identified it, if I'm not mistaken. They, um, was it Bongo? Um, was with, yeah, they called them, yeah, here then Bongo, um, smell wind, and then he's, he basically confirms that it's French. Um, I thought that was just a, a good use of humor to kind of undercut the, the tension that follows almost immediately thereafter. So the, the French dialogue, or the dialogue with the Frenchman that follows, um, you know, a page or so mm-hmm. later, that's absolutely just straight out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's the French taunting, yeah. yeah so, definitely. I mean, mm-hmm. think about all the, all the talk of French and English smells in, in that movie. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I do like the, the choice of calling it the Le Grand. Yeah, be the the grand, mm-hmm. and I do. Um, it's not uh, th- this is not relevant directly, but I, I do see a lot of uh, the Jonah story, Jonah in the mouth of the whale, with the all have lost thirty of my crew. Are you two really that important that Smith brings to the to the pair? Um, were there any other pot? elements that anyone wanted to go over um so i'm I've, I've been going over my brain how to how to discuss this without doing spoilers um it is interesting that the beginning of the novel the frame narrative it's it's uh chronologically after everything that that comes after it you know like we're, we start at the at the end um and i i i having read this whole book on uh, the last about 10 days or reread the whole book in the last 10 days and then uh, restarted it to read the first five chapters for, again. Uh, it did kind of remind me of Infinite Jest, where Infinite Jest begins with the chronologically the end of the book, um, because we we do get. Um, I I want to. It's stated that Cherry Coke is in is in town with his family because he's there to for Mason's uh, funeral, um, which I, it went over my head the first two times I read this book. Um, I'm not really exactly sure why that happened because it is it isn't it isn't belabored at all, but it is a pretty important uh, aspect of the beginning. I think that Cherry Coke came into town to go to Mason's funeral, and then it seems like every day he goes to visit Mason's grave. Um, 
and I don't want to spoil the ending of the book, but that does it does seem to be kind of a, a cool, like kind of circular uh, you know, whenever you finish the book, you can just kind of pick it up and start reading it again. Um, which I, I love books that do that. Um, and I do think that Infinite Jest, I think, came out within a year or two of this book as well. So kind of like a like a dark tower kind of situation. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I haven't read Infinite Jest, but uh, Dark Tower definitely does that. With that, I don't want to spoil that, but it does do that. That circuit. Yeah, yeah. Infinite Jest was published in '96, so. Pinchon would have had a year to read it, but I feel like potentially Mason and Dixon would have been done by then, if I was to guess. Probably, I would imagine it would have been like at least in editing stages at that point. Well, and it's it's absolutely possible because we know that uh, DFW did talk to like Delilo and other um, predecessors while writing Infinite Jest um, that he sent Pinchon an early draft. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, I, I'd be surprised if Pension didn't get an advanced review copy of Infinite Jest, now that, it, now that I think about it. Oh yeah, I would imagine he did. On the other hand, though, you, you know, people people will insist that both Gravity's Rainbow and The Crying of Lot 49 have those kinds of circular structures. I uh, fail to really see the relevance of, of that structure in lot 49 i i told i I can see how people are looking at it not sure what value that has but you know people see it there and it's definitely visible with uh, gravity's rainbow too so it's yeah i think it it's more direct in gravity's rainbow yeah i agree that lot 49 i don't really see it as circular personally i don't think it's circular I i think if someone's seeing it that way i think they may be misconstruing what circular is i think it it brings it to the point i think it's bringing it to a point that it feels like it's it's at the beginning because it's it has that sort of anticipatory ending where you're almost like setting up the story again but it's definitely not going back to the beginning of it yeah that that interpretation relies on reading the opening paragraph of lot 49 as discrete from the rest of the chapter i think but my my point was just to say that um you know he might he might have been inspired by infinite jest he might have been inspired by previous works but it's the the circularity of this book especially with how episodic each chapter is it really does lend itself to just opening up and reading yeah i i think that's i mean you can do that with gravity's rainbow too i find myself just periodically picking up that book and just flipping to a random page and just reading an episode or two and then putting it back down. Um, and I think you could do, you definitely could do the same with this. Um, the only other thing I really wanted to bring up before we jump into quotes, there was just another funny part, um, at the beginning of chapter five where Mason tells Dixon, you're a Quaker. You're not supposed to believe in war. And Dixon's response is basically like, Oh, well I got kicked out. So I guess I can just kill anyone I want now. <laughs> yeah. Then they kind of go on and uh in, in kind of discussing the differences in their religions and uh Dixon says, No, I've I've no problem with Anglicans and Mason's response is thank you. I welcome the return of at least an hour's more sleep each night, otherwise spent in fretfulness upon the question. And I just think it's a good representation of the two of them and their their demeanor with each other. Like, even though they, they come from different backgrounds and really conflicting backgrounds at that, like they're still respectful of each other and can joke with each other like that. And you can really see the the beginnings of their friendship forming in there. 
Yeah, it's very true to life dialogue, too, because coming from a religious background, I was a minister for about three years. Um, that is a lot of the, the kind of joking that happens interdenominationally between people. Mm-hmm. It's very accurate to, to real life. Yeah, along those lines, but not not as religiously relevant, the the whole... Someone ought to have told you, Captain, of that rutabagous anemia which afflicts Lensman as a class. And it's just like, okay, yeah, that's just the the most complicated way, I think, possible of saying, yeah, we're all skin flints. You should have known better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, was there anything else... Plot-wise, anyone wanted to touch on before we jump into quotes? Not for me. Okay. Who wants to go first on quotes? Um, I think I can go first. My quote comes from page 45 in in my edition, uh, right at the end of, of our reading, actually, like right at the end of chapter 5, where they're, they've gone through this discussion of trying to figure out what exactly happened, why this, this event on the seahorse occurred the way that it did. And there's a quote here uh, that starts with Mason speaking, where it says, as if there were no single destiny, puzzles Mason, but rather a choice among a great many possible ones, their numbers steadily diminishing each time a choice be made, till at last reduced to the events that do happen to us as we pass among them through time unredeemable, much as a lens indeed may receive all the light from some vast celestial field of view and reduce it to a single point, suggests an optical person, your... Mr. Bird, perhaps. I find that to be, you know, not just a a really poetic quote as far as describing kind of destiny or how we can sometimes be railroaded into a path in life by the decisions that we make because we cut off different possibilities from ourselves by doing one thing or the other, but also breaking down this this concept of of learned men, astronomers or, or scientists looking at potential, you know, deistic views of what's happening to them, but still doing so through the lens of of their own equipment, talking about, you know, being a lensman and how that relates to this idea that we might be, we might be on a path that is chosen for us by some sort of uh, destiny or some sort of God, I find to be really integral to to the overall structure of the book and, and the thematic intent that, that Pinchon is going for. Yeah, I had that that section marked in my book as well. I th- I thought it was absolutely beautiful. So my my favorite quote is probably also the probably the most pinched part of this part, of the first five chapters for me. It's uh, about the um, the card table, and uh, I'll read it right now. So the wonderful card table which exhibits the cheaper sinusoidal grain known in the trade as wandering heart, causing an illusion of depth, which into which for years children have gazed as into the illustrated pages of books along with so many hinges, sliding mortises, hidden catches, and secret compartments that neither the twins nor their sister can say they have been to the end of it. Uh, it reminded me of something we talked about, I think it was in the last episode, of um, Joyce saying that you know his, his works are going to give scholars something to talk about for years on end, um, because, and the Pigeon Wiki does point this out, um, but that, like, the, the part about hidden catches and secret compartments and stuff, it just kind of reminded me of Pynchon's longer novels in general and how you can really tear them apart. And uh, there's so many, um, you know, like hidden kind of, I, there's so many tangents. There's so much stuff like hidden inside of it. There's so much ground covered that you can't really ever wrap your head around all of it. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, for me, it was my, my favorite quote was on, this is on page 37 of, of my edition. I think the pagination is mostly the same in most versions. Um, but it's at the very end of the page. Um, and it starts, uh, the Rev Reverend only beams. One reason humans remain young so long compared to other creatures is that the young are useful in many ways, among them in providing daily, by way of cre the evil creatures and slaughter they love, a denial of more mortality clamorous enough to allow their elders' release, if only for moments at a time, from its claims upon the attention. I think, for me at least, as, as a parent, that line hits a little harder. Um, and I think that probably pinch on having kids um, it kind of influenced that, and that the idea that you know we we can kind of retain our youth so to speak for these small amounts of times through our children and just in the way that they um have like kind of their their outlook on life their perception on things and the way they they view the the world itself i guess like they're not focused on all the the problems that that adults have to worry about and all the things that that cause our anxieties and our stresses and everything like that they just they're just living and they're just having fun and allowing yourself to kind of see that and and get yourself wrapped up in that can kind of take away from you you know the the stresses and everything that you're dealing with if only for a little while but it it kind of helps to increase our our livelihood and our our ability to live longer in a literal sense as well um just through having the the experiencing the joy that they're experiencing secondhand well, and especially because i believe jackson pynchon was born in 91 i think so so yeah. i i wouldn't be surprised if not just that quote but also the presentation of this novel and and how it is so warm in it in it being a story being told to children wasn't a big part of um kind of helping him square in his mind sort of that element of it i wouldn't be surprised if that had changed some things for for pinchon as he was writing it it does seem obvious that um pinchon has done some verbal storytelling for this book um yeah i mean i i would honestly i mean it, this is kind of a, an aside, but it would have been really cool to be Pynchon's son and perhaps have him read like a working version of this book to him at bedtime or something. Um, oh, yeah. There's really, I mean, this is not, I mean, we, we'll get into this, I think, more deeper into the book. But, you know, it is it is kind of an edited uh, version of the story. You know, like there's a lot of there's there's kind of gestures made at, at stuff like sex, but it's not explicit in the least. Um, unlike his other longer novels or unlike any of his other novels, like a lot of stuff is implied rather than stated in terms of yeah. um, adult content. Yeah, I could definitely see him testing a lot of these kind of episodes, you know, as, as bedtime stories. Will, what, what is your, did we steal your quote? Again? No, no. <laughs> <Did any of> us... <laughs> see, the issue is that this kind of very, it's very sentimental, romantic, um, prose style is one that I just I love so much that I just can't ever settle on anything um, that that I like more than other things so I'm just gonna go for a, a big quote um, the second page of the novel um, 
This Christmas tide of 1786, with the war settled and the nation bickering itself into fragments, wounds bodily and ghostly, great and small, go aching on, not every one commemorated, nor too often even recounted. Snow lies upon all Philadelphia, from river to river, whose further shores have so vanished behind curtains of ice fog that the city today might be an isle upon an ocean. Ponds and creeks are frozen over, and the trees aglare to the last slightest twig. Nerve lines of concentrated light. Hammers and saws have fallen still. Bricks lie in snow-covered heaps. City sparrows and speckled outbursts hop in and out of what shelter there may be. The nightward sky. Clouds blown to chalk smears. Stretches above the northern liberties. Spring Garden and Germantown. Its early moon pale as the snow drifts. Smoke ascends from chimney pots. Sledging parties adorn indoors. Taverns bustle. Freshly infused coffee flows every place, borne about through rooms front and back, whilst Madeira, which has ever fueled association in these parts, is deployed nowadays like an ancient elixir upon the seething pot of politics, for the times are as impossible to calculate this advent as the distance to a star. And, I mean, honest, like, you know, the, the, the rest of the chapters we read past the first one for this episode are a lot of dialogue, uh, a lot a lot less of that kind of meandering description. But whenever it pops up in this book, I do just sit there and reread it and reread it and read it aloud to myself and say it in different accents because it's just the command of language that he is always exhibiting is stunning oh absolutely and i highlighted that section as well and and for the same reason because i i don't remember who said it earlier that there's not a lot of um descriptive parts of this where the scenery is being set because of the mainly due to the, the fact that it's being told the way it's being told but when it is there like it is there it's so beautiful and it's so well done and i think that's i mean for me that's one of my favorite parts of all of his books but in especially in this book and i would even say against the day has like that whole towards the end the, all everything that took place in the baltic area all the descriptive parts of that section were so beautiful i just it's mind-blowing that a, a human being can so beautifully construct an image there are not many authors i think that are capable of doing it on that level and so when when you have those moments they're just so much more special yeah, I'd, I'd agree, actually, that Against the Day has a lot of the same quantity and quality, but they differ in that I, I, I think of Against the Day as written as jazz, like the, the cadence is what he's operating on, whereas here in this book throughout, sure, obviously cadence and stress is, is all important, but it really, the just the, the, the little rhymes, the little assonance and consonants throughout the novel they're everywhere they're e even in the dialogue there is wordplay there is practically poetry it's yeah i was gonna say it's poetic like through and through absolutely poetic um i didn't put it in the notes and i apologize for that but if if anyone has a most pinch on part of the section that we read um luke did you have did you have one? I thought you mentioned one earlier, or it was in the quote. I did mention the quote. 
Sorry, one sec. The quote I mentioned. Um, other than that, I mean, this is probably going to be a pretty popular one uh, with us and with readers in general. But, um, you know, the way the Pynchon anthropomorphizes the learned English dog is really interesting. Um, and a lot of other authors just either wouldn't go there or wouldn't give such a, a, a massive chunk of, of time to... Um, you know, something that's that's kind of a, in some ways, a silly kind of children's book type thing. Um, or would give too much to it, honestly. Yeah, one of the two. Because it does seem to strike a very, you know, he's, we, we see him in the beginning, and it's very interesting, but it, it seems to be, it does, it's not too much, and it's not too little either. You know, it's a very, it's a very good amount where we, we get to know him a little bit. You know, he, he expresses his personality, and then you know, the, the narrative just kind of moves on. Um, we've talked about this before, but you know, he, he he does the same kind of thing in um, against the day with the chums of chance and their dog. Who I'm I'm forgetting. I'm blanking on the name of that dog, but Pugnax, yeah. But it does seem to be a kind of recurring theme for him. As a side note on on the the dog, and this this is could be way off base, um, but it did remind me of the movie Up, not in that. <laughs> Uh, the dog in this book is wearing a collar, but the one in Up does have a collar on that has a red LED light yeah, on it yeah. that turns on whenever it speaks. And given that the abbreviation of this is LED, I couldn't help but wonder if the writers of that movie maybe had read this and pulled some inspiration <laughs> from it. <laughs> I honestly wouldn't be surprised. Like the, the Pixar has got some good writers, and I, I would not be surprised mm-hmm. if they were Pinch on fans. Yeah, no, me neither. Um, my my most pinch on part of the chapter was the Bill Clinton joke. Um, yeah. The the idea that you would spend so long learning how to write a book like this, because there's no way that he did that overnight. You know, there was probably a significant chunk of time where he was figuring out how to get the language right and how to, to nail down the prose style and all of that. And then within, you know, 30 pages of it, still not being able to keep yourself from including a joke about Bill Clinton in there. <laughs> Um, that just struck me as as being a one of the greatest you know anachronisms I've ever read, but also just being quintessentially Pinjon. Yeah, that actually was going to be exactly what I was going to pick as well. So I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, and it's it's a lot like uh, it's a lot like the the Nixon quote unquote quote in Gravity's Rainbow. In Gravity's Rainbow for Part yeah, Four, yeah, where it's you know this very <laughs> contemporaneous to the publication choice just thrown in there basically just for a laugh yeah <laughs> um what about you will did you have a, a most pinch on part well unfortunately luke did steal mine um <laughs> but i will um do something of i, I guess a, a borrow from you kate uh you did mention the led and the LED blinks, shivers, nods in a resigned way. You are hardly the first to ask. And, it, it, you know, the rest of what he says is not relevant. But just the choice to insert the LED blinks, shivers, you know, mm-hmm. come on. That's, that's obvious. <laughs> but it's also super clever because, you know, Learned English Dog is not a name for Pynchon that's super attention grabby no it's very subtle for him which yeah yeah 
it's conceptually grabby yes but not the not the words that he's using yeah well uh to wrap up we we actually did have a a question from a listener that i wanted to bring up um i think it's especially relevant now and i we've talked about this off um you know off record i guess so to speak um but Dylan uh, sent us an email, and he asked, um, or they asked, I should say, uh, I have really enjoyed your Crinoblot 49 series. I was wondering if or when you plan on doing one with Vineland. It's next on my list, and it'd be fun to be able to plan to read along. There are very little companions for Vineland out there right now. Um, definitely, there are not many companions, if any, companions for Vineland that I know of off the top of my head. Um, I love Vineland. I think it gets dunked on a lot, and I think that's relatively unfair i it, it gets it gets thrown into that phrase i hate of pinch on light um which i think is inc- incredibly reductive um i think it's a really good book it's it's not his best but it's way better than people give it credit for um and for anyone who is not in the know on why this is irrelevant to the time question uh, there is rumors circulating through hollywood that uh pt anderson's next movie is going to be an adaptation of vineland um i have to underline the word rumor because there is absolutely no confirmation of this as of the recording of this um it is speculative at best there was a casting call that went out a while ago that kind of started all of this and he's mentioned before wanting to adapt it before he did uh, inherent vice um so we talked about this while we were working on Lot 49, and I, I think we all kind of agreed, and, and anybody correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think we wanted to wait and see what came of the rumors, um, because if it is in fact going to be his next film, um, then we may end up doing it after this to kind of line up with when the movie comes out. Um, but we really don't know. So... I don't want to say, you know, we're going to do it after this or we're going to do it here or there. I, really and truthfully, we haven't mapped out what we're doing after this as of right now. We're just trying to take it one book at a time. And as we get closer to the end of Mason and Dixon, we'll start talking amongst ourselves about what we're going to do next. Um, but I thought it was a, a good opportunity just to real quickly have everyone kind of mention, you know, what, how, what do you feel about Vineland? Like, how, do you, how did you come away from that one? There, there are parts of Vineland I really enjoy. Um, it is probably on like the lower tier of, of pension for me. Um, there are some really cool parts though, and it, it is kind of it has some similarities with the Crying of Lot Forty Nine in that it does kind of have some like um, I know that the the phrase like strong female character can can get a little bit of heat. I, I've seen some stuff about Hollywood actresses not liking that phrase or phrases similar to that, but. Um, it is it ha- it has some of my favorite parts of any pension novel. One one part of Ireland that I find myself thinking about a lot is the part where Zoid is watching TV and he keeps on watching TV in the hope, like late at night, when assumedly he's really stoned and he's just sitting there watching TV, hoping that his um his ex his ex wife uh, will show up on the TV at some point. Um. That's a that's a part of that book that really stuck with me. Um, so there are parts of it I really enjoy. Overall, I just found it a little bit all over the place, I guess. I actually would rank Vineland higher on my list. It could be that I read it after I read Infinite Jest, um, just as, as sort of a, a comparison piece, kind of, because they both deal heavily with, with entertainment and television. But 
I think that the elements of that book that are sort of about a critique of modern American entertainment consumption and culture have only gained in relevance since the book was published. I think that its high degree of absurdity that it has sort of intentionally mirrors the kind of absurd programming that the book is talking about. Um, so I, I am actually probably a bigger fan of Island than a lot of people are. Um, I really enjoy the book. I think that it provides a lot to talk about, especially in how it's aged from the time that it was written until now. Um, and think that there's a lot to explore there that that people kind of leave behind. It does have probably way too many characters um, from a standpoint of, of the actual named cast that's in it. But, you know, as as it stands out as a book, I, I'm quite a fan personally. Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a fan as well. It's it's his it's the sorry, I don't know why I can't phrase this sentence. <laughs> it's the book of his that I think is is, you know, both in terms of timeline and in terms of its contents. It it really is an ugly stepchild in a lot of ways. Because, you know, I uh, you know, you can t- you can absolutely sit there and nerd out about how V through Lot 49 through Gravity's Rainbow uh, demonstrates a, a shift in like perspective from a young beat to a, to a postmodernist philosopher or whatever. And you can sit and talk about how, oh, Mason and Dixon and Against the Day and um, Inherent Vice to a Lesser Extent and Bleeding Edge, they have real female characters. They have real characters in general. They have real storylines and real humanity to them and what vineland is to me is a basically pension writing just a family drama i think all of that media critique is there but it is just a family drama and that is not what people want out of thomas pension and what they don't want and, and what people want from family dramas is not the f- is not Thomas Pynchon essentially trying to figure out just how long he can do his backdoor introductions in a row? Because that's what that book is on a structural level, is... So I was talking to this person, and they started talking about this other person, who was this person in regard to that other person. Where you have these pockets of dialogue that morph into narrative that only exist to provide context for an earlier conversation or a later conversation. And I love that. I think it's one of his best tricks. I think he does it perfectly throughout most of the book. Um, I think the characters are all at least, uh, all of the characters who have more than one dimension, which, which, you know, that's the first book which really does that. Um, the, the multidimensionality of the real characters or of the main characters is very real. It is not just like, it's not just goofy. It's not just uh, like Commedia dell'arte style stock characters. And I love all of that when you combine it with the fact that to, to me at least, and uh, you know, this is not my idea, but it's not a super common conclusion either that it, i mean it's a gender swapped version of the odyssey and i don't see why people don't appreciate those things except that they don't expect it well i think part of it you know 
I think part of the the lukewarm response to it, we'll call that, is the fact that it comes it's coming off the heels of, of Gravity's Rainbow. And so long after that, I think that people expected like, oh, he's he's been gone for, you know, almost twenty years and then this is what he comes back with. When you know, again, it, I think that's a reductive thing to say, but, you know, he was also, that wasn't the only thing he was working on during that time. And I think that it was just a matter of that was the one that was done at the time. And, you know, he could continue working on, on Mason and Dixon and Against the Day. Um, but yeah, I think everything that, that Will mentioned is is absolutely correct. Um, I, I love it. I think it's a great book. I, again, I don't think it's his best but it's a shame that really you could make the argument is a shame that everything after gravity's rainbow doesn't really have the companions for it that it should. Um, but that's kind of where we are. So. Yeah. Almost, almost anything that he would have published after gravity's rainbow would have been probably to some degree sort of swept to the side by critics. Yeah. Simply because it wasn't gravity's exactly. rainbow. Exactly. Yeah. And waiting as long as it was, to your point, for that book to come out did not help matters. Yeah. It's, and that's true of any, really almost any artist in almost any medium. You know, you have these long gaps in between projects, especially a project that's as beloved as it is, you know, as Gravity's Rainbow was, so that almost inevitably whatever you put out after that is going to be uh, held up to that that lens. And if it's not Gravity's Rainbow 2.0, it's just, you know, it's not going to be good. In, in their eyes so um but that is what it is we'll see what happens with the movie i actually i think pt anderson would be the right choice to do it um i think he did great with inherent vice so if that's the case if that's what he's working on i'm i'm excited for it yeah i'm just excited he's working on a new movie to be honest <laughs> yeah and i know in you know in march that there was an article that was released where a journalist had spoken to pta about what he was working on and one of the projects was very nebulous. He just said it was about war veterans in their 50s. But the other one, he said, was a father-daughter story that has a plot about the GOP and martial arts. Yeah, which um, is pretty spot on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if, I, if I'm honest, though, I, I love Paul Thomas Anderson. I think if he adapted Vineland, he would do a decent job. But my ideal would be for somebody to like stick at you know Quentin Tarantino from the late 90s in a Ludovico machine type situation to force him to like have some awareness of things outside of his uh, libido and then feed him some acid and have him make Vineland I think that would be I think that that would be about the right tone. But that person doesn't exist for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the reasons people are skeptical about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson doing Vineland is, uh, you know, Inherent Vice, I think it was critically a success. And I think among fans of Pynchon and Paul Thomas Anderson, it was mostly a success. Um, but it did not make money. Inherent Vice did not make no. any money. No, and it, no. it hasn't i mean it, it is somewhat of a cult classic i would say but it hasn't it's not like it's not like blade runner or something where it's like you know like um it's demanding a sequel or something you know what i'm saying like it ha it doesn't have that big of a cultural impact it hasn't had well even 
even Blade Runner, to your point, Luke, when they released the sequel to that, that also lost money at the box office. Yeah. yeah. So they, they massively overestimated the word cult in reference to to, to that film as well. Well, I, yeah, on, on top of all that, I mean, Inherent Vice is probably his least popular movie, which is a shame to say because it's not his worst movie. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I forgot about Heart Eight. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a great movie. I, I have to say, it is a fantastic film. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Did, did that one actually get a full theatrical release? I didn't think it did. I think it was a very limited uh, oh, okay. release. Because even the studio changed the name. He wanted to call it Sydney. Uh, and the studio forced him to change the name. Huh. Well, and I, I haven't seen it yet, but people always compare the master to Pynchon's novels. And so I think a lot of he was. I just think a lot of that admittedly excitement. inspired by V, and he was uh, that movie was supposed mm-hmm. to have a, the alligator in the sewer subplot. Uh, One thing that I will say about Inherent Vice, and it struck me after repeated viewings, but Inherent Vice is to me at least in some ways uh, an adaptation of Pynchon's all of Pynchon's works. You know, with it does seem to capture um, Pynchon's like worldview, especially as it concerns America in a way that um, I think kind of rises above just the book Inherent Vice and seems to kind of be more a more like broad, um, kind of more like, you know, like the vibes of Pynchon novels. It seems to be adapting that kind of a thing rather than Inherent Vice specifically. Yeah, he does strike a very good line between retelling the events of that book and also getting it at a broader thematic point about America and about land abuse and and all of that. To to the point that was made about it losing money at the box office, I would love a book to be written about how that film even got made because <laughs> the amount of actors that are in it for, in some cases, like five minutes of screen time uh, or even less, like Eric Roberts as Mickey Wolfman is in, is in the film in like two pictures mm-hmm. and in like two minutes yeah. of, of actual dialogue. Michael K. Williams but, is on for like 30 seconds. Yeah, like every single person who is in that film is a really solid actor or like a a incredibly famous actor as well. And to get all of them on board and to get, you know, enough money on board to shoot the entire thing on um, cameras that were from the 70s on original film stock, like that is not a small undertaking. And I'm just so curious how that was done. I would love someone to actually do like a, a deep dive into the production of that film. Yeah. But I doubt that'll ever yeah. happen. <laughs> you, One can only hope. You got to consider that like, you know, that that point in time. When, when did the movie come out? 2011? 2011 or 12. Uh, it yeah. might be 13. It might he be. Had ju- Anderson had just come off of his most critically successful movie. He hadn't quote unquote missed since Heart 8, right? Um, I don't, he's never had a film that was critically under like 80% on any kind of metric. Yeah. Um, he, the, the Coen brothers were at their peak in terms of popularity that, and at the same time, you know, different style of kind of same outdoors type director, but Wes Anderson was out there. And he has some similar aesthetic sensibilities to Andrew, to P.T. Anderson. I mean, it was really a perfect time for P.T. Anderson to rip a bunch of Hollywood people off. It's 
true. I mean, and I think he's he's commanded enough respect as a director that I'm sure a lot of those actors just were chomping at the bit to work with him. So, you know, that's how you get Martin Short to play Rudy Blatnoid. Uh, <laughs> and perfect character. Like, he was perfect for that. Absolutely, Absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. Um, I could talk about P.T. Anderson and, and Inherent Vice all day, so I don't want to get too off in the weeds. Um, so... With that being said, um, Dylan, thank you so much for for the question, um, and I hope our answer wasn't too uh, long winded and and uh, just all over the place. But um, so please, you know, send us a, an email if you have any questions. Mappingthezonepod at gmail dot com. Um, the next section we are going to read. So for anyone unfamiliar right now, we are following the um, Mason and Dixon reading group from the subreddit. Um, so you can get a full breakdown on there of, of how we're going to do this, at least for now. If anything changes and we've, we are going to change things up, we'll absolutely let you know. Uh, but for our next episode, we are going to read chapters 6 through 10. Uh, so it's about the same page numbers, roughly 50-ish. Um, so we will be back next week to discuss chapters 6 through 10. Um, thank you again to Connor for editing for us. We really appreciate it. Um, and And thank you so much for all the effort that you put into doing it and you're doing a really great job and I, I can't thank you enough. Um, so thank you all for listening and we will see you all next week. Bye. See ya. Bye.